While the future may indeed be unwritten, it can from time to time be predicted. Consider the reflections of a perceptive French observer upon witnessing the East India Company's strategic acquisition through treaty rights of half the formidable Mysore Empire's territory. I am convinced that the English will establish themselves in the Mughal Empire only precariously and with much uncertainty, and they will no doubt eventually in due course of time lose it but they will certainly control it for long enough to extract absurd amounts of money from it, which will enable them to maintain the role they have. Who can stop them? The author ponders before noting that in Hindustan, anarchy smothers the hope of anything good germinating or sprouting. The people live in want and misery. These ever-reoccurring disturbances which pin down all the armed forces of this empire are welcomed by the English as a sure means of taking over the empire itself, bit by bit. They carefully stoke the fires of civil discord, which they then offer to resolve, backing up such mediation with a show of military strength as soon as they well can. This pattern of behavior, from which they have not deviated for several years, has allowed them to seize control of many areas beyond the limits of Bengal. They play the game of advancing without ever being seen to make any step forward. The English company stands alone today on this vast stage, preparing secretly and silently to extend immeasurably the major role they are playing here. All their schemes, their plans, their initiatives, all tend to this one great object. One by one, all the powers of India are being reduced by terror, intrigues, flattery, promises, or threats. Every day the English company takes a step closer to that goal. They need make only a small effort to achieve this grand and magnificent project. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the East India Company. Episode number six, Dancing on the Threads of History. While life within the confines of the East India Company's warehouses and boardrooms might have seemed insulated from external turmoil, the specter of English francophobia disrupted the calm in 1798. This was the pivotal year when Napoleon, not yet an emperor but already hailed as one of the world's preeminent generals following triumphs in Italy and Austria, embarked on his ambitious yet ill-fated Egyptian campaign. Despite a year of active planning to cross the English Strait, Napoleon abruptly shifted his strategy, opting to instead set sail towards North Africa and the Middle East. Historian Frank McLinn provides insight into the strategic U-turn, explaining that it both assaged Napoleon's apprehension about not being adequately prepared to conquer England, while simultaneously allowing him to indulge a long-standing ambition. 
providing Bonaparte with the opportunity to follow in the hallowed footsteps of Alexander the Great, setting his sights on the alluring prospect of marching on India. This unexpected turn of events reverberated within the East India Company, injecting an undercurrent of uncertainty into everything they did. The French and English both held the view that Cairo was the gateway to Asia, and thus news of Napoleon's invasion fleet sailing across the Mediterranean sent shivers down the spine of every Englishman living within the subcontinent. Tipu, the leader of the down-but-not-out Mysore Empire, had long fostered strong relations with the remnants of the private French merchant forces that remained in India, stating his belief that the touch of a French sword is all that is needed for the framework of mercantile grandeur to collapse. Charles Cornwallis departed India with his good name fully restored within the petty circles of the English nobility, along with plenty of money in his pockets. He would go on to next support British rule in Ireland, which included putting down a French-supported revolution in 1798, before returning to and ultimately passing away from a fever in India in 1805. The next major chapter in EIC history would belong to brothers Arthur and Richard Wellesley men who would go on to conquer more land in India than Napoleon would manage in Europe. Richard, the elder brother, was appointed as the company's new governor-general. A close friend of the prime minister, his appointment was seen as an opportunity to halt the erosion of the company's independence, which had been steadily in retreat ever since the 1773 Regulating Act had been passed. His second goal was to permanently wipe the French scourge from the land. Those instructions included dehumanizing terms, as he was ordered to cleanse the French contamination from the land. Reading between the lines, Wellesley wouldn't have to look over his shoulder to see what anybody thought of the methods he used against England's nemesis. France had been financing multiple sepoy armies across the subcontinent. Historian William Dalrymple notes that at a time of national crisis, when Britain was at war not only with France but also with Holland and Spain, when its last ally Austria had just laid down her arms, when a naval mutiny had broken out in the Channel Fleet, and when Napoleon was drawing up plans for seaborne invasions of both Ireland then on the Rebellion and the English South Coast, this was not something the British government was prepared to tolerate. The publication of a declaration of friendship between the French and Mysore granted the newest EIC director justification for the bloody actions that had been the impetus for his appointment. In a strategic move against the French residents of Hyderabad, Nestled in the heart of the Deccan Plateau, between the East India Company's headquarters in Calcutta and the formidable Mysore Empire in the Ghats, Wellesley orchestrated a calculated strike. The renowned French commander overseeing the region met an abrupt and suspicious demise, sparking rumors of potential poisoning orchestrated by a pro-company faction. 
Fearing a similar fate, the city's leadership engaged in clandestine negotiations with Wellesley, ultimately reaching an agreement to expel the French forces. The ink on the treaty had scarcely dried when the encirclement of the French forces commenced, culminating in a tense 30-minute standoff. A staggering 14,000 members of South Asia's most formidable French corps relinquished their arms. Shortly thereafter, the East India Company received news of Napoleon's predicament. He was stranded in Egypt following Admiral Nelson's decisive sinking of the entire French fleet. Seeking to strike while the iron was hot, the EIC continued to advance towards the defiant Mysore Empire of Tipu. Employing dehumanizing language, Wellesley referred to Tipu as a beast of the jungle, while simultaneously risking the ire of Islam adherents by branding him a perpetual jihadist fanatic. This marked the beginning of a relentless pursuit of Tipu by the East India Company. Dalrymple informs us that Tipu had an extremely efficient network of spies and knew exactly what was happening beyond his borders. He tried with equal energy to raise support from the last indigenous armies capable of taking on the company, warning them that whatever differences they may have had in the past, this was their chance to unite and defeat the British. But it was late. The best move would have been to enter into negotiations, but Tipu was as fierce of a warrior as there ever was. Historian Kali Sapansky pushes back against the EIC's crazed fanatics propaganda, writing that as Sultan, Tipu funded continuous military advances, including further development of the famous Mysore rockets, iron tubes that could fire missiles up to two kilometers, terrifying British troops and their allies. He also built roads, created a new form of coinage, and encouraged silk production for international trade. He was particularly fascinated and delighted with new technologies, and had always been an avid student of science and mathematics. Having already defeated the British twice before, Tipu wasn't willing to cede any more territory to his enemy, supposedly boasting that I would rather live a day as a lion than a lifetime as a sheep. Better to die like a soldier than to live a miserable life dependent on the infidels. The siege of his capital city began on April 7, 1799. The French forces valiantly defended their longtime ally, but their force consisted of a mere 450 men. It was the company's heavy artillery that made the difference, breaching the walls on May 3rd. Islamic practitioners still from time to time utilized divination, a practice that is discussed negatively in both the Quran and the Bible. The subsequent signs all pointed towards disaster for Tipu. Yet the brave warrior still led his elite Lion of God battalion into the breach. Dalrymple describes the scene for us in great prose, detailing how, as the company troops were already well within the walls, there was nothing for him to do but to climb on the battlements and fight for his life. Outnumbered, bravely taking on the overwhelming incoming rush of company sepoys, he quickly received two bayonet wounds 
and a glancing musket shot in the left shoulder. His attendants called upon him to surrender, but he replied, Are you mad? Be silent. Here, between the water gate and the inner ramparts of the fort, the wounded Tipu stood to make what even his most hostile British opponents acknowledged was his gallant last stand. A party of redcoats had forced their way between the gates, and one grenadier, seeing a gold buckle sparkling on the waist of the wounded man, tried to grab at it and received a fatal sword slash from the sultan in return. Seconds later, one of the dying man's companions shot Tipu at point-blank range through the temple. After four wars against the company over a period of 32 years, the tiger of Mysore finally fell, sword in hand, among the heaps of dead and dying men. A few hours later, the capital of the empire had fallen. That night, excessive violence was visited upon the innocent people of Tipu, whose legacy remains intact to this day as a brave, capable, and just ruler. However, Wellesley's dehumanizing tactics swiftly revealed their consequences, as the scene devolved into a harrowing orgy of rape and violence. The city, scarred by the unprecedented brutality, never fully recovered. The plunder, now valued at over 200 million pounds, included the infamous golden bejeweled tiger throne of Tipu, callously dismantled and distributed. Despite the East India Company's efforts to maintain the facade of a mere trading entity, they took a sinister turn by appointing a five-year-old member of the Mysore dynasty as a puppet underscoring the ruthless machinations employed to sustain their rule. Upon hearing of the successful conquest of the Mysore Empire, the EIC Governor-General raised his glass and gave a disgusting toast to the corpse of India. He knew that the conquest was nearing its final phase, as only the Marathas Empire remained nominally outside the company control. They currently oversaw the protection of Shah Alam, the ruler of the Mughal Empire who had been blinded by Afghan Rohilas during a Marathas takeover. Although the Marathas' land in the northwest, central, and southern lands remained greater than the holdings of the EIC, the difference between the two powers was that the EIC remained united in the quest of commerce, while the Marathas remained divided by seemingly everything. Resembling more of a weak confederation than an autocratic empire, with Dalrymple noting that Wellesley needed to do very little, as he could just sit back in Calcutta and watch as the great confederacy fell apart. It began with two of the Marathas leaders going to war after the elder brother of one was captured hung in chains, and flogged with 200 strokes before suffering what was locally known as the lingering death, a practice that involved the prisoner being tied to the foot of an elephant. A civil war within Maratha's territory subsequently broke out in 1801. Observing the winds of change, the EIC reached out to the losing side in order to offer a defensive alliance 
one that would inevitably result in the company gaining complete control over the political and economic decisions of their territory, as well as acknowledging the company as the overlord of the Marathas Empire. Of course, the other warring members of the Confederacy had no plans to abide by any such treaty, and within months, the remaining members of the formerly Great Confederacy had united to form the largest, best-armed, and most highly trained forces they had ever faced. In an effort to win over public opinion, Arthur Wellesley opened a secret line of communication and offered the Mughal Emperor Shah Alam the chance to come over to their side. Alam had previously left the EIC's quote-unquote protection after six unproductive years. His gamble resulted in regaining the throne, but since then life had been harsh for both him and his family as the Marathas had kept the royal family in perpetual poverty for 30 years. And that isn't just conjecture, as one royal son had been reduced to scraping out semi-precious stones that were inlaid into the tower's marble. After such a long time, it must have seemed to the Marathas that the old man had accepted his lot in life, content to be allowed to work on his poetry rather than dealing with the day-to-day -day work of running an empire. And that was true to an extent, as Shah Alam informed his kids that he had accepted the fact that he would never have the power to restore the grandeur of their kingdom. But between the choices of the EIC and the Marathas, he chose the group that hadn't helped to carve out his eyeballs. The company formed two large armies in anticipation of completing the conquest of India. One was commanded by Arthur Wellesley, while the other went to Lord Gerald Lake, a man who claimed to have been descended from the legendary but fictional Lancelot of the Lake. The armies were gigantic as Cornwallis's land reforms had allowed the company to maintain a standing army twice the size of England's own. Underlining the notion that you have to spend money to make money, their wages were mostly paid through debt financing. The assumption was that the conquest would eventually create new revenue streams, propelling the EIC's profits into the stratosphere. It was during this time period that the company's debts tripled. If you think that this logic is silly, then you probably aren't the CFO of a Fortune 500 company. Investors Daily notes that 19 companies of the Fortune 500 bear one-third of America's $5.7 trillion in corporate debt. Among those are well-known names such as AT&T, Ford, Verizon, Comcast, and Apple. The soldiers cost the EIC money and in an effort to protect the bottom line rather than for moral reasons, the governor general worked behind the scenes to buy off Maratha mercenaries. One of the first to turn was the Frenchman Pierre Perron. He was the commander-in-chief of the Maratha's northern forces, but was easily swayed, having already invested his life savings in EIC company stock. The financial indebtedness placed him between a rock and a hard place. Fighting the EIC would fulfill his contract, but defeating them would tank his stock prices and destroy him economically. Thus, he was persuaded away with a simple bribe to put his men where his money was. 
Wellesley even doctored fake communications, which he then leaked to keep the various factions of the Marathas at each other's throats. While everyone's attention was fixated on the looming war, the Governor General drafted internal documents that made it clear the EIC's intention was to control the entire Indian Peninsula, ensuring that no indigenous group could challenge their authority. In 1803, tensions reached a climax when one segment of the Marathas declared war. Within hours, soldiers were marching according to predetermined war plans. Falsely claiming the high ground, Richard Wellesley stated for the record that his enemies have rejected the hand of friendship I have offered. The responsibility is entirely yours. A bribe secured the EIC Army's first victory, gifting it the remaining treasure of the Marathas Confederacy and restocking the Army's pantry. Overconfidence, however, soon struck, with Wellesley's forces attacking despite having just completed an exhausting 18-mile march. His artillery got stuck during a river crossing, and he was baffled when his enemy completed a complex turning maneuver that he assumed they were incapable of. The engagement became known as the Battle of Assay, and Arthur Wellesley would recall it as the most difficult battle he had ever participated in. That was saying something, given he had appeared on the winning side of the significantly more known Battle of Waterloo. Direct comparisons between the two battles were common, as one major stated, it was acknowledged by all the officers present who had witnessed the power of the French artillery in the wars of Europe that the enemy's guns at the Battle of Assay were equally well served. The EIC's overconfidence almost cost the governor-general his brother, as Arthur had two horses shot out from beneath him and faced numerous other harrowing close calls. Dalrymple documents that one large round shot just missed Wellesley as he was crossing the Kelna, but decapitated his dragoon orderly as he paused midstream. The horrifying sight of the headless horseman features in many accounts of the battle, the body being kept in its seat by the valets, holsters, and other appendages of a cavalry saddle. And it was some time before the terrified horse could rid himself of the ghastly burden. Ultimately, victory came to the EIC, but it was costly as one-third of the army had to be buried on the plains of Assay. The Maratha suffered even greater losses, including 98 of their 100 French cannons. Although Wellesley's force continued, his losses meant that the honor, such as it was of striking the fatal blow to the Maratha's confederation, would belong to Gerald Lake. A veteran of the Seven Years' War, known to Americans mostly as the French-Indian War, and the American War of Independence, during which he tussled with George Washington over Yorktown, Lake's motto was, Damn your writing, mind your fighting. He lived up to it in India, marching straight towards the heart of his enemy, favoring speed over size. He left behind most of the heavy artillery and all of his siege equipment. 
Dalrymple notes that although this wasn't Hitler's blitzkrieg towards Russia, where Nazi troops weren't allowed to pack their winter jackets, Lake's intention to lead a small and mobile force was somewhat challenged by Indian reality. By the early 19th century, East India Company armies had accumulated a huge establishment of attendants, assistants, support staff, and various other personnel. In the end, the total body heading west amounted to more than 100,000 people, including mahouts and coolies, grass cutters and horse keepers, tent lassers and bullock men, baraha grain collectors and money changers, female quacks, jugglers, groups of dancing girls, and voltaires of pleasure. These numbers did not, of course, include the thousands of elephants, camels, horses, poultry, and flocks of goats and sheep, which followed close on their heels. With such a circus, one truly wonders how much faster they could move without cannons and siege equipment. In his first siege, Lake bought off the enemy commander who suspiciously left the field at the beginning of the battle to gather reinforcements. His forces were tipped off that something was amiss when he reportedly left without his hat. Seeing their commander flee made many in the army, particularly the men with mixed Anglo-Indian blood, question their life choices, with many deciding to switch sides. Lake could have patiently waited for the siege to demoralize the opposition, but that likely meant writing numerous proposals to the enemy, and Lake really hated writing. For him, the best decision was to attempt a full frontal assault on a fortress that everyone had agreed was impenetrable. They tunneled to get beneath the walls, but a cannon above the sappers fell through and blocked the passage. As the attackers desperately tried to move the wedged cannon out of the way, they were picked off by the handful. One soldier that lived to see the day wrote that the sortie became a perfect slaughterhouse and it was with the greatest difficulty that we dragged the gun over our killed and wounded. At the sacrifice of many lives, the company men finally managed to turn the cannon in the right direction and used it to blast through the enemy's gate. Miraculously, Lake was now free to lead his cavalry and take the garrison. Another sacking was followed by extreme violence, with all 2,000 soldiers being massacred, as Dalrymple notes, no quarter was asked for and none was given. Around midnight of the next day, a massive earthquake toppled a 600-year-old mosque in Delhi. One biographer of the time claimed that had the earthquake lasted a moment longer, it would have ushered in the day of resurrection. In reality, it ushered in British rule of India, something that brought the trials of the rapture without any earning salvation. The ruler of Delhi, at least in name, Shah Alam, continued playing both sides, but was now fully convinced to throw his lot in with the company. Knowing that the prior word of Warren Hastings hadn't meant much, Mughal emperor demanded some payment up front. But the reality was that he didn't have much of a choice. He was powerless to assist either side in the conflict, was guaranteed to be disposed of if he chose the wrong side. With promises on paper to ensure a proper allowance, he spent the last of his political capital 
to hold back his heir from the battle with the approaching EIC forces. The Marathas turned to another Frenchman to stop the rampaging horde. He was a man who had formerly made a living making both fireworks and tartlets, small fruit pies without the top crust. According to the book, A New History of the Marathas, his craft in culinary matters were superior to his skill in military ones. He moved his 19,000 troops out of Delhi's Red Fort to ambush the EIC. Dalrymple writes that any opponent would have to funnel themselves into a narrow causeway between the bogs. The commander then hid his 100 heavy guns in a semicircle behind tall fans of elephant grass at the base of the hill and waited for Lake to approach. Lake woke his troops at 2 a.m., as was his habit, and the final march towards the Mughal capital began an hour later at 3 a.m. At 10 a.m., after marching 18 miles, with the sun beginning to beat down on the column, Lake ordered a halt for breakfast besides a marshy lake on the banks of the Hinden. Tents were erected, boots were removed, fires lit, and the sepoys began to cook their breakfast. The general sent a dram of liquor around to all officers. Quite suddenly, a series of bright flashes illuminated the sky, followed by the thunderous crash of heavy artillery. This shattered not only the tranquility of the day, but also the eardrums of men closest to the guns. The accompanying pressure wave generated by the explosive muzzle blasts was immediately followed by other unnatural and far more eerie auditory sensations that played upon the deafened ears. Grape shot tore and chain shot scythed through the grass with a shearing sound, which was followed by a metallic clatter of muffled thuds. Depending on whether the projectiles struck equipment or the flesh of men and horses, it was a massacre. Lake maintained his composure, ordering his infantry to fall back as a feint. When the Marathas rushed forward, the EIC caught them in a pincher movement, bolstered by cavalry that had remained out of range of the ambush. By using bayonets, they forced their enemy back into the river crossing. The Marathas had gambled everything on what became known in history books as the Battle of Delhi. Dalrymple explains the significance of the moment, writing, Terrible as it was, the Battle of Delhi was the last time British troops faced French officers in South Asia. It also brought to a close Hindustan's unhappy century of being fought over and plundered by rival armies. As Kher Un Din put it shortly afterwards, the country is now flourishing and at peace. The deer lies down with the leopard, the fish with the shark, the pigeon with the hawk, and the sparrow with the eagle. While Undin wrote to flatter his British patrons, there was a measure of truth in his words. In comparison with the horrors of the last century, the Great Anarchy, the next 50 years would be remembered as the Golden Calm. Most importantly, the Battle of Delhi decided the future fate of India. The Marathas were the last indigenous Indian power that was militarily capable of defeating the company. After Assay and Delhi, the outcome of the war became quite clear. 
Through treaties and bribery, the East India Company now wielded control over the entirety of the subcontinent. They appointed 600 of their civil servants to govern the entire country with the singular purpose of generating profits for their shareholders. This marked a monumental changing of the guard, as Christians were now at the helm of what had predominantly been a Muslim-ruled nation. The British would maintain authority over India for the next 144 years, only relinquishing control of its crown jewel after Gandhi's movement of civil disobedience during World War II made it untenable for the British to remain there any longer. The Diplomat, a journal dedicated to the Asia-Pacific region, teaches us that the origins of the modern-day religious violence between Hindus and Muslims were a direct result of the colonial project to divide and rule. Under that doctrine, the minority British clung to power by fostering hatred between the two largest religious groups on the subcontinent. Gandhi, a Hindu, would be assassinated over his support for the partitioning of independent India, ensuring that Muslim citizens would not have to be a minority within the Hindu majority nation. The creation of Pakistan and East Pakistan, now Bangladesh, sparked outrage among Hindus, leading to a nationalist shooting the father of Indian independence three times in the chest during a multi-faith prayer meeting. By that point, the EIC was no longer involved in the affairs of India. They restored Shah Alam to the now-symbolic peacock throne of the Mughal Empire and fulfilled their promise to financially support the emperor's family. He survived for three more years, passing away at the age of 77. Richard and Arthur Wesley, the men who had annexed more land in India than Napoleon had in Europe, were soon recalled not because they overextended their mandate or had authorized and likely committed war crimes. Instead, they were sent back to London because their wars of expansion had been fully funded by debt financing. For two consecutive years, the EIC was hemorrhaging money, spending more than £210 million in today's dollars than they were taking in. Overall, the company's debt had doubled, ballooning from $1.5 billion to $3.3 billion in today's dollars. To pay back the burgeoning debt, the Wellesleys had resorted to autocratic means to gather enough silver for shipment to London. Thirty years after their recall, the British government made the decision to nationalize or take over the East India Company. While it had once been considered too big to fail, it was now deemed too significant to exist outside of their control. British parliamentary member James Silk eloquently captured this sentiment when he declared that the idea of consigning over to a joint stock association, the political administration of an empire peopled with 100 million souls, was so preposterous that if it were now for the first time to be proposed, it would be deemed not merely an absurdity, but an insult to the meanest understanding of the realm. There was one attempt to push back on the nationalization, as the EIC's private army rose up in rebellion in 1857, but were mercilessly put down by the British Raj. 
At that point, all traces of the company's brand were scrubbed from the subcontinent. Incredibly, the name of the most powerful company in world history is now owned by an Indian businessman who lives in London. He consolidated control over the trademark by buying up the rights from 30 to 40 others. His physical shop, which stands in West London, contains more than 350 luxury products, including 100 varieties of tea, chocolate, spices, and mustards developed by the company from across the former British Empire. Pride positively oozes from the interviews of Sanjiv Mehta, who proudly displays the job title of chairman and CEO of the East India Company on his LinkedIn page. The Financial Express did a story regarding his takeover, writing that the company that once symbolized British colonialism had found its way back into Indian hands. So here stands Sanjiv Mehta, the visionary entrepreneur who reclaimed a symbol of oppression and humiliation, embracing the past with a whimsical twist of fate. With every step, he dances on the threads of history, crafting a tale that intertwines the spirit of entrepreneurship, resilience, and redemption. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you'd like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.